Good morning. Welcome to Genesis. Good to have you guys here with us this morning. We are continuing our series through Genesis, and we're in chapter 20. If you have a copy of the scriptures, open it to Genesis chapter 20. If you need a copy, raise your hand, and Alex will run one down to you. And, you know, we've been looking at how there are these beginnings throughout this book. The book Genesis means origins, and we've been seeing how God is establishing a covenant with humanity, and now through this man, Abraham, and we're continuing our journey with Abraham, and, and chapter 20 is an interesting chapter. I, I almost passed over it because it's very similar to what happened in chapter 12. We didn't go in depth into it, but there were a few things that really stood out to me that I wanted to try and focus in on this chapter. So let's read Genesis chapter 20 together. It says, Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Does that make you feel nice, ladies? Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, I love how God just has a way with words. You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials. When he had told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. <laughs> uh, honey, this is how you can show you love me. Say you're my brother. <laughs> then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. What a strange account. 
you know, there was a time when you'd watch TV shows and you could tell the good guy and the bad guy. The good guy wore a white hat and the bad guy wore the black hat. And, you know, the good guy would make mistakes, but he felt Dosh Garn, sorry for them, and, you know, would try and make things right again. But things have changed, and TV has changed. Have you noticed? Now they, they toy with your emotions with these characters. And so the people who you think are good end up becoming bad, but then they end up becoming good again. Have you noticed that? You know, like Lost, remember Lost when it was there? If you could follow what was going on, you know, well, is, you know, Sawyer a bad guy or is he a good guy? Well, who's, you know, what about Ben? What about Locke? Who is Locke? Is he a good guy? Is he... They leave you guessing. Well, he's good in this show, but he's bad in the next one. Or The Walking Dead, right? I know, we're talking about The Walking Dead on Sunday morning. You know, Rick, is he good? Well, what about Daryl? Daryl's the good guy now. I think I haven't watched a few episodes, so I don't know how things might have changed. I mean, and then even, you know, they had Dexter, a serial killer who only killed serial killers. How can you not love the guy? And so there's this idea of who's the good guy and and when are they the good guy? And this is one of those stories. It's like, well, who's the good guy in this story and, and who's the bad guy? Well, we know Abraham is supposed to be the good guy. But it sure doesn't seem like it. In fact, we don't see him doing what a good guy should be doing. And here the heathen king, Abimelech, ends up being a good guy. And this shouldn't surprise us because this happens throughout Scripture. Remember Jonah. The prophet Jonah, and once you hear the word prophet, automatically your mind usually starts to go, oh, he's with God, but not all the time. Jonah, the prophet of God, is told to go to Nineveh. He says, nope, I'm going to Tarshish. And so Jonah gets on a boat to head away, and you know the story. There's a big storm, and I love the first chapter. It says all the sailors that are on the boat start crying out to their gods that they might be delivered. Where's Jonah? He's asleep. The heathen are crying out for God to save them. They're casting lots saying, let's find out what's going on. They're seeking some kind of help. And the prophet of God is asleep. And finally they say, well, we got to find out what's going. And Jonah says, it's me. I'm the prophet of God and I'm running away from God. And so what you need to do is throw me overboard and then you'll be saved. And they don't do it. They start paddling like crazy for the shore, but they can't. So finally, unwillingly, they toss Jonah over. And then, you know, Jonah's in the belly of the great fish, three days, three nights, gets spit up on the shore, and then he goes into Nineveh. He just marches through and he tells everyone, repent or judgment is going to come. The city repents. And then God tells him, do you have a right to be angry? Really, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? And in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says this of God, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And he's upset about that. The prophet of God is upset that God is generous and not wanting people to suffer. That's the prophet of God. 
There's another account in 2 Kings, another one of my favorites, where Naaman, who is a commander of the Syrian army, a Syrian army is fighting against Israel, their enemies. And the slave girl who's in his household, an Israelite slave girl, is in Naaman's household, and Naaman gets leprosy. And the girl says, you should go to Israel. There's a prophet there who could heal you. So Naaman goes to his leader and he says, Master, young girl says there's a prophet in Israel who can heal me. And he says, well, I'll send you a letter. Go over there. And he writes in the letter, you know, here, I want you to know that I'm sending Naaman to you. In verse 4, chapter 5 of 2 Kings, it says, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Syria replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took of the king to Israel said, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robe and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send me someone who cannot be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. And then Elijah hears of it and he goes, tell the king, stop doing that and send them to me. The Assyrian king has faith that God can heal. The Israelite king thinks he's trying to pick a fight. And then Elijah's servant asks for money and ends up contracting the leprosy Naaman's servant pleads with Naaman and says, listen, master, he's just asked you to dip in the Jordan. What's it going to hurt? And the most unusual people end up being the heroes in this story. The slave girl who who starts this whole process. Naaman's servant, a foreigner, who begs Naaman to go. And the people who are unbelieving are the king of Israel and the prophet's servant. Not who you would think. And and what we start to see taking place is there are attitudes that we have within our own mind that start to shape how we think and how we look at the situation. You know, in this story in chapter 20, it starts off and, and it's very similar to what happened in chapter 12, where... Abraham did the same thing in Egypt. Say you're my sister because you're beautiful, they'll kill me. And what they call that is a type scene. In other words, this is a scene that's like another scene. And throughout the book of Genesis, there are these type scenes. And then what the author will do, will focus on one point to try and bring about a specific point that they're making in this scene. And this type scene is not only familiar with chapter 12, but did you notice that Abimelech's words are very familiar to or similar to Abraham's words when Abraham pleaded to God before Sodom? He goes, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And Lot said the same thing to God. And now we see in verse four, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? And so there's these similarities, these types in these scenes that connect 
to each other so that we see this theme. And what we're getting is more information about the character of God through this. Will you destroy the innocent? God, are you going to do that? And it's interesting because the focus of this specific scene is the dialogue between Abimelech and God. The one who hears from God is the heathen king. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel or or what that does to you, but it's interesting that the heathen is the one who actually is doing what is right. And the prophet of God, Abraham, is the one who is deceitful, but not really deceitful. But we see something's messed up here. Say you're my sister. If you show, if you really love me, you'll tell everyone I'm your brother. Can you imagine, wives? You go somewhere, yeah, hey, if you really love me, tell everyone I'm your brother. Yeah, that's going to fly, you know. And, and so we see that God speaks to Abimelech, and I love it because God's very specific to him. He says, you're as good as dead. He doesn't pull any punches. He, he lets Abimelech know exactly what's happening. He reveals the situation to Abimelech. And Abimelech says, I've done this with a clear conscience. What, what I've done, I've had clean hands. In other words, Abimelech has this understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Even though he's not a prophet, even though he's not one of Abraham's children. And we've seen through Genesis people like Melchizedek who come up and he's a priest of the Most High God, but he's not a part of the tribe. And so throughout the world there are these people who have an understanding of what is right and what is wrong, that God has given them this kind of recognition of these things. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2. And so if you can, turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writes, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Apart from the law, he's talking about Gentiles. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. In other words, they are going to be judged, but not by the law, but they still are going to perish if they sin, because what they're doing is wrong. Verse 13 For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And so with the Jewish people who hear the law, it's not enough to hear it. They actually have to do it. Just hearing about it isn't enough. In fact, hearing about it means that you're required to do it. Verse 14, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, which is what we see with Abimelech. Here's someone who didn't have the law. The law wasn't given yet. Abraham didn't even have the law yet, but he's doing what is right. And so there is a law within himself and he's 
going to be held accountable for that law that's in himself. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so their conscience is telling them what is right and they will be judged according to the revelation that they have been given. And that's exactly what we see with Abimelech here. He says, I have a clear conscience. My hands are clean. I didn't do anything wrong. I did not take another man's wife. And God says, I know. And what's very interesting is right after God says, yeah, I know. He says in verse six, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against two against me. Well, wait a second. He was going to take Abraham's wife. Wouldn't he be sinning against Sarah? And wouldn't he be sinning against Abraham? No, I have stopped you from sinning against me. I gave you a warning. I told you, you're you're as good as a dead man if you go through and you touch this woman. And I did this so that you would not sin against me. And so we see that God is actually intervening for Abimelech. Because it's real important to God's plan that Sarah is not touched by someone other than Abraham. It is his child that is going to produce the Messiah. And God is going to protect that. And in the meantime, God is also protecting Abimelech. And he's saying, yeah, I know. I have kept you from sinning against me. And that's why he has done these things to keep him from sinning against him. God knew and intervened for the king's sake and kept him from sinning against the Lord. And then Abimelech goes to Abraham, and I love this because he gets all his people together, and then he says, what have you done to us? Why are you doing this? Answer for yourself. Why would you act this way? Why would you lie? And then Abraham, you know, gives this little confession. Well, she's my half-sister, which again, that's a whole other thing. That's kind of strange in itself. But this is again before the law that condemned these things. But Abimelech is the one asking the questions, asking why have you done this? And Abraham's answer in verse 11 is really the key that I wanted to, to focus on today. He says, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. Was he right? No. Abimelech was afraid. He didn't want to do what was wrong. And so Abraham said, there's no fear of God in this place. That's how he thought. When I was in the fifth grade, I had to do a a book report And I don't remember what it was, if it was I had to talk about a country. It must have been because I had to study about China. And I don't know why I picked China or if it got picked for me, but I had to do a report on China. And I went to the library, one of the three times in my life that I went. And so I went to the library and I got a book on China. 
And I remember photocopying pictures in there because they were going to be in my report that I had to put together. And, and I read this book and I remember taking this book home because you, you can do that in the library. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you're able to take them. You just got to take them back. Got to remember that. Anyway, I, I took this book and I remember going through this book with my grandfather. And I remember as we were reading this book, it said that there are like, you know, six million people in China. And it said Chinese people all look alike. It said it in the book. And my grandfather, you know, I was just writing the report. I just wanted to get it done. I didn't even think about what it said. My grandfather says, that's not true. And he was real adamant. And he goes, do you think all white people look alike? Like, uh, no, I guess not. And he goes, give me that. And he started writing things down for me. He goes, I think this is offensive that a book would stereotype people to be in this way. And he just, I was like, yeah, cool. Grandpa, write my report for me. I'll, I'll do it again, you know. But I remember him writing this down. And just as he started writing it, it started clicking with me. You know what? There is this sense that people just prejudge that this is how it is. And he opened my eyes to see that this book that was in the public library made this statement that was pretty horrendous. This was back in the 1700s or so, okay? So it's a long time ago. And so as, it, as he started writing these things, I became aware of this prejudice that was in this book and in the country, no doubt, for a period of time. And as he started writing, I became aware of, you know what? That's not a fair assessment. And that's really a terrible thing to say. Because they don't all look the same. And what a terrible thing to tell a person that your child looks the same as every other child that's out there. Any mama ever going to stand for that? My child's better looking than all the other ones. But it was something that just came out. And and here, Abraham said and thought to himself, surely there is no fear of God in this place. And you see, to Abraham, all cities were Sodom. Just like God had destroyed Sodom, all cities were like Sodom. And I think what happens in a a Christian culture, is pretty soon all people outside of our faith become the world. There's no fear of God in any of them. And yet that's not what we see in Scripture. We see time and time again God revealing Himself to the people who are outside, whether it be Rahab the harlot, whether it be the Magi who bring the message that the the Messiah is born. People who are outside of the religious culture still hear from God. And this culture has come about, and, and I was very much a part of this, and this has been something that I've had to try and look at how I think. Just as I read that book and I read that say, oh, okay, it says so, I guess that's true. Sometimes we hear things and we think, okay, I guess that's true. And we hear in this Christian culture that, well, you know what? We have the truth and we're different from everyone else who doesn't have what we have. In other words, we, we are the saints and everyone else is the ain'ts. 
And I've heard it that way. And I'm like, okay, yeah, there's the saints and the ain'ts. We have God. We know God. No one else does. And, and in our minds, like in Abraham, the fear of God isn't anywhere else. Everywhere else is Sodom. Everywhere else is the world. In fact, we start talking about people in very generalistic t- terms. They're a non-believer. What does that mean? You just throw them in a big lump. Well, they're an unbeliever. Do they not believe in Jesus? Do they not believe in God? Do they not believe in right or wrong? Do they not believe? What do you mean by a non-believer? Well, they don't have faith in Christ. Okay, I, I can understand that, but it doesn't mean that they don't have fear of God. It doesn't mean that God isn't working, and it doesn't mean that they aren't right next to making a decision for Christ. You see, the atheist is an atheist until the moment he says, I'm not. Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church, and then the next day he was one of them. And it happened like that. But it didn't happen just like that. God was already at work. And God is at work. And here we see where God is working and speaking to Abimelech and he had the fear of God, but Abraham just assumed he was like Sodom and like everywhere else in the world. You know, even in Christianity, we start to become very exclusive. We do things the right way. We really understand the word. We really discern the scripture. And everyone else is outside because they don't look at things the way we do. We are the sheep, they're the goats or the wolves. And I have this problem. Whenever people tell me something, I always try and figure out if that could be true. Like people who have these conspiracy ideas. They come up to you and they say, you know, It wasn't really a plane that crashed into the Pentagon. It was a missile. And they just say that, and there's a YouTube video, and it says, yes, here's a missile, and yes, here's this cover. And they spell, and I just stop, and I go, wait a second. So where'd the plane go? Well, they took the plane somewhere else. Who? did, Did the pilot know? Did the air traffic controllers know? Did the pilot's wife know? Or did he just not show up and he didn't tell his wife, I'm not coming home because I'm part of this government conspiracy? What about the co-pilot? What about the stewardesses? You know, and pretty soon you just start saying, how many people had to know about this for this to happen? And you've got thousands of people who have to know and be holding this conspiracy. Yeah, the the pilots didn't know, the co-pilots didn't know, the air traffic controller didn't know, the people who planned this whole thing in the government. And then what do we do with all the families that were on the plane? Did they know? Did they get rid of their cell phones at some point? Hey, you guys are all in. Did they just kill them? What what happened? You know, I just start asking. Pretty soon you ask these questions that's just like, that's ridiculous. You have a thousand people covering up this incident, and then you have... Thousands of people saying something different they actually saw happen. You ignore the ones who saw it happen and you watch the YouTube video and you know it happened. I don't think so. And so when people start saying things, well, they don't interpret the scriptures right. They don't do things right. I start thinking to myself, well, wait a second. For about 1,500 years, the church didn't have the Bible like we have the Bible. Most people didn't know 
or understand what the full Bible said because it wasn't in their language and it wasn't readily available. So all those people, without the knowledge that you now have, they're going to be judged for what they couldn't have known? Will the God do what is right? Will God judge the innocent for what they didn't know? See, does that make sense? That God's going to condemn these people because they don't know exactly how it's spelt out? Or is God pulling people to the truth so that they can see who he is? And lead them to a place where he is most clearly seen in his son, Jesus. But we get into our culture and pretty soon our prejudice sees everyone as not fearing God. We see everyone as Sodom. We see everyone as the world. Everyone is outside and whoever is outside is bad. And whatever is inside is good. And we have a very strong us versus them mentality. And that doesn't bode well for conversation. It doesn't help to reach people when you are looking at them and prejudging who they are and where they are. You see, Abimelech needed the truth. But Abraham assumed the worst. And it led Abraham to make some bad conclusions. And it does the same thing to us. Christians often become conditioned to be afraid of everything that's outside of the church. And it causes us to act in some very strange ways. We, we seclude ourselves. People have monasteries where you just go and you can't be influenced by the world at all. Oh, don't listen to that music. Don't listen to that radio station. Don't watch TV. Don't, oh, you can only watch Christian videos. Well, DVDs, I guess now. Back when I was there, they were VCRs. You can only watch the VCR tapes that are Christian. Oh, no, don't watch Disney. Oh, no, don't watch them. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, my Oh, I can't tell you how much conflict we got about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because they meditated. It's like, come on. First of all, they're turtles. (laughs) Not only that, they're mutant. And then they're teenagers. So take a chill pill, okay? Don't worry about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But oh, you'd be amazed at how fearful people were about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's going to get your kids into the wrong religion because they see these turtles that have ninja things meditating. We become paranoid. and We get these illusions of what's going to happen. And... You know, without really saying it, it's very subtle in the dialogue, but the idea is we criticize and we ridicule and we put other people down just in how we think of them. And that's exactly what Abraham did to Abimelech. 
There's no fear of God here when Abimelech did have the fear of God. And so those are the kinds of things that we need to see and understand. You see, no church or religion has God all to themselves. In fact, be careful if you are at a church that really says that we are the right way of doing things and everywhere else is doing it wrong. Be very careful. When you go to that place, you know something is wrong. And just remember that idea. What did they do for 1,500 years without all the knowledge you now have? Will God not judge the innocent right? But if they're very exclusive, it's this is the truth, we have the right way. Well, no church or religion has God to themselves. And we do not take God to others. He's there already. He takes us to them. When you go on a mission trip, whether it's to Haiti, whether it's to the Philippines, whether it's to Africa, you are joining God in the work He is already doing. He is taking you where He already is. And if you don't see that, you will make the wrong assumptions. You will prejudge the situation and you will see people in the light of your belief instead of the light of what the scriptures actually teach. In Acts chapter 17, God has placed people in every place, everywhere, at every time so that they might be at the proper place so that they could fully understand who he is. So that person who was born in Haiti or the Philippines or in Africa is born there at that time because it is the best place for them to come to know who God is. How do you fit that in with your theology? Or in your mind, they don't fear God, they are the world. But see, if you have the difference that God has placed you here, now when I go to you, I can find out how God is speaking to you. And now I can tell you, let me tell you something a little bit more. And then you introduce them to Jesus and they say, oh, that's his name. I was wondering who he was and now you've made it clear to me. Why? Because you're joining the conversation that God is already having. You see, if Abraham would have been attentive, he would have seen that Abimelech is already a person who feared God. And he could have said, this is my wife and I am a prophet. God is going to use me. And Abimelech might have said, how can I help you? How can I be a part of that work? He might have had more opportunity to engage him and to do more. Instead, no, there's no fear of God in this place. And he puts Abimelech in an uncomfortable situation. And God has to intervene because Abraham just the way he's thinking is that the way we're thinking god's grace spreads further than we know don't make it less recognize that it's already reaching places that we can't like the human heart god's grace is able to reach the hearts of men that's somewhere we can't reach, but God can. God speaks to whoever he wants to speak to. And he listens to everyone. He loves everyone. He wants to help everyone and bring them to himself. That's his desire. This is God's project on earth. And he's asking us to join him.
But many times we are like Jonah. Where we are actually fighting against what God is already doing. And God is trying to be merciful and graceful. And we're trying to make it legalistic and put rules and regulations to bind people. We want them to follow our rules. And God is saying, no, I want them to come to know me. And sometimes our rules can hinder that work from taking place. Jonah said, I knew that you were gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Is that the God we're proclaiming? Will the God who is just do what is right? Will he judge the innocent when they didn't know? And so we find ourselves in a place where how do we help them to know? How can I help those who are ignorant or maybe have a wrong idea of who God is? How can I help them understand the revelation of God that has been given through His Son, Jesus Christ. How can I meet them there? It's not going to happen by prejudging them. It's not going to happen by putting them in one big bucket and say, you're lost, we're found. It's going to happen by getting to know who they are. And when you find out that they have some beliefs that maybe are a little skewed, okay, well, that's not true, but I can see that you're very religious. Remember Paul in Acts 17? And you have this statue here. It says to the unknown God, well, I'm here to make known to you this God that you don't know. I'm here to tell you that God loves you more than you think. Well, I think God is everywhere. God is like a force. And go, oh, that's, that's an interesting idea. But you see, I think God's much more personal. God is not just everywhere and God is not just anything, everything. God is a person who came and gave himself for you specifically, not generally. That God became man and his name is Jesus. And I can give you a fuller revelation of who God is, but I want to start where you're at. And now I can lead you to the truth because I'm not demeaning you. I'm not throwing you in the pool. There's none that fear God. This is a godless nation. Oh man, this country's gone to hell in a handbasket. I don't know what that means. But anyway, I don't have a handbasket. I've never had a handbasket. So I don't know where to put one. But maybe there are millions of people who actually fear God and don't know who he is. And maybe we have the opportunity to bring the God who has revealed himself through the person of Jesus clear to their minds and understanding. And maybe they got some misconcluded ideas. I don't know if that's a word um, about who God is. I, I, I mean, most people get their idea of God from movies. You know how many people think God is a force just because of Luke Skywalker? And so instead of just flushing them down the toilet and say, oh, you guys are lost, terrible people, why not engage them where they're at and say, no, God is much more than that. God is much better than that. God is good. God is merciful. He, he doesn't want calamity to befall anyone. God is actually reaching for you. God actually cares about you personally. 
Let me bring clarity to your understanding. But first, let me start where you're at and not let me look down on you because no one does well when they are criticized. No one does well when they're looked down upon. No one likes to be the butt of someone's criticism. And for much too long, the church has stood in this place of self-righteousness. We are the moral majority. So you're saying everyone else is immoral? You see, I know a lot of moral people who don't believe in Jesus, who believe in justice, who believe in compassion. And I'm not going to lump them in with just this whole immoral group because that's not them. I want them to come to know the beauty of who God is as it's been revealed in Jesus. And to do that, I have to first start to hear what God is speaking to them where they are at. And then I can start the conversation there and I can bring the clarity further along to who Jesus is. But I'm not going to do them any good saying, no, you're wrong, I'm right, the Bible says so. Everyone out there, don't believe in God. You know, all the world is evil. Surely, there's no fear of God in this place. Every place is Sodom. Every place is the world. And it wasn't true. It wasn't true this time with Abimelech, and it's not true throughout the scriptures. We see time and time again, God is reaching those who are out of the arena that you would consider, whether it be the Rahab, whether it be Cornelius, the centurion in Acts chapter 10, whether it be someone who you would think wouldn't know God, Zacchaeus, the thief, the tax collector. And they are closer to God than we realize. They just needed to see him more clearly. And so we have the opportunity to make God clear because he's made himself clear through Jesus. And that's what we bring to the people, Jesus. But Jesus does it because he cares. He's not wanting to bring calamity on anyone. He's gracious. And so let's bring Jesus clearly to the people, but let's not demean people in the process. Let's see where God is working and start from there. That way we could have God's blessing. And at the end of this passage, verse 18, it says, For the Lord had kept all the women of Imlech's household from conceiving. It's the first time we actually see God's name, Yahweh, used there. And we see that God then blesses Abimelech's house because he is obedient to the things of God. And God does that as he blesses those who walk with him. We find his blessings walk with us. So let's carry that on to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, I struggle so, so many times with language that I am so used to hearing in my Christian life. And things that have been so black and white to me all of a sudden don't make sense and, and I struggle how to bring clarity to these things. And I, I look at your scriptures and I start to see this clarity come about. 
Lord, people have accused me of watering down the truth, and all I feel is I'm revealing the truth. I'm not taking away from you, Jesus. I'm trying to make you clear. I'm trying to make you known, but I'm trying to get rid of the barricades that we've built that hinder people from seeing you clearly. And I'm trying to stop the prejudice that is in our hearts towards people who are outside of our faith and to put them all in one slate as the ain'ts, to put them all in a place of being godless or not fearing God, to think of them all as just useless unless they believe like we believe. God, help us to struggle through this prejudice. Help us to struggle through this stereotype that we have. May people see Christians as the most loving, the most welcoming people in the world. Jesus, you welcomed prostitutes. You welcomed the thieves. You welcomed those who were zealots, who were violent people. And you brought them to yourself and you revealed the truth, the heart of God to them. And they were changed because of that. Lord, we keep expecting people to get changed and then join us. But Lord, help us to see where they're at and make you clear to them right there. May we recognize that around us there are people like Abimelech who hear from you but just don't know your voice. They just don't know what's going on. They don't have the clarity to understand and we have the opportunity to make clear your voice in their lives. We have the possibility to show them clearly that you have a name, that you are Jesus, that you have done so much more for them than they could ever have imagined. God, help us to put aside those things that have hindered us for so long. May we not look at that book like that library book and say, well, they're all the same. All the world is all the same. May we close that book and say, that isn't true. And may we open your book and say that you've placed every person every place of the world at every time so that they could most clearly come to know you. And it is our job to join you on that task. God, you are already there. May we come alongside of what you are doing and be part of this work. And may we see a harvest from this. May we see people grow in their understanding of you and in their love for you because they see clearly your love for them. Oh God, may our hearts overwhelm with the opportunity that the fields are white, ready to harvest. Lord, they're not dark. There is no country in this world that is hardened against you. There are just people who do not hear or discern your voice, but you are speaking and the field is white. It's ready to harvest and we've been called, we've been given the task to join you. So may we not neglect it, but may we represent you clearly may our hearts be your hearts may we not be like jonah and turn away but may we recognize that you are compassionate you're not willing to bring calamity that you love beyond our ability that your grace reaches far beyond our understanding that you are already here already working god help us to be a part of that work 
And may we recognize, Lord, that you want to use us. That you've given us the clarity to see so that we can be a part of this work. And so, Lord, may we step into that work with you where we live, where we work, where we go to school. May we bring the truth of God every place we go. May we bring clarity everywhere we go. May we bring Jesus everywhere we go. It's in your name we pray. Amen.